and welcome to Essential Descent. I'm Wilton Vaught, producer and host of the series. This episode is Defending Our Movement, a panel from the 2020 UNAC conference, which was held at the People's Forum in New York City. UNAC, the United National Anti-War Coalition, fights against wars at home and abroad. Their goal is to bring together organizations and movements representing people in struggle today and unify in collective action against the major perpetrator of war and injustice in the world, the United States government, along with its allies and proxies. We start with an intro by moderator Margaret Flowers of Popular Resistance. We've talked a lot about the importance of building popular movements. And we've talked about elections and who's going to win as the president and things like that and defeating Trump. My theory of popular you know, movements and social movement theory is that it's, it's about popular power. We're not going to elect our way out of this crisis. And I think probably most people would agree that we're not going to elect our way out. It's about building popular movements, uniting our movements, and building power. And as we build power, we know that the power structure is going to fight back, right? This is something that's been going on for a very long time here and around the world in all sorts of various ways. The power structure is able to divide, weaken, and suppress and hide our movements. What are some of the ways that the power structure weakens our movements? Just shout it out. Suppressing websites. White supremacy. Bogus charges. Netflix? (laughs) 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 Miseducation. Dividing and conquering. The divisions that we create, yes. Imprisoning Assange, right. Infiltrators. Debt, yes, debt weakens us as well. Co-optation, infiltration we heard. Uh, the nonprofit industrial complex, putting us into silos, pitting us against each other. There's all kinds of ways. So it's really critical as we build power that we also understand these mechanisms and how we defend our movements. And so that's what this next panel is going to be about. We have some excellent speakers who have a long history in this area and can tell us what is going on through the stories that they've experienced and their life experience as well. So let me just do a quick introduction for our panelists, and then we'll get started. To my immediate left and your right is Frank Chapman. Frank? When it comes to defending movements, people should know Frank's name. Frank is the co-chair of the Chicago Alliance Against Racist and Political Repression, He spent many years in prison where he organized and fought against discriminatory practices with the prison system and studied Marxist ideas. Chapman spent a number of years as a member of the Communist Party and today is a member of the Freedom Road Socialist Organization and the relaunch of the National Alliance Against Racist and Political Repression. Let's give it up for Frank. Michael Smith is next, and he's a retired New York City attorney, now repurposed as the co-host of the nationally broadcast radio show. You can hear it here on WBAI. It's called Law and Disorder. His most recent book is Lawyers for the Left in the Courts, in the Streets, and on the Air. And, um, and then 
To the left of Michael, your right, is Kevin Zeese. So I know a little bit about him. (laughs) Kevin's my partner. We uh, co-direct Popular Resistance together as well as co-hosting Clearing the Fog. And uh, Kevin is a longtime... He's a lawyer who's basically uh, devoted his life to social justice and peace and starting out fighting the drug war in 1980 when it wasn't a popular thing to fight against, fighting against mass incarceration and working on a broad range of issues and is one of the four, along with myself, people facing prosecution right now by the federal government for our protection, as many of you were part of. There are many embassy protectors here. Our protection of the Venezuelan embassy in Washington, D.C. last spring. Let's hear it for Frank, Michael, and Kevin. I was asked to come here to speak on the question of community control of the police. And that's what I'm going to do. And also to speak on defending the movement. We unconditionally defend all those who are struggling for meaningful social change in this country without qualifications. You know, you don't have to qualify to be of my particular political persuasion in order for us to defend you. Uh, that's not what a mass defense movement is all about. In the African-American community, we have been experiencing repression well, ever since we've been in this country. You know, when we came here, we didn't come past the uh, Statue of Liberty. We didn't go to uh, Alice Island. We came here on a slave ship called the Dutch Man of War in 1619, okay? I'm just talking about in North America. We came in chains. And so our struggle against racist and political repression has been going on for the last 400 years. It didn't just now start. And also, it's been getting ignored for the last 400 years. So I'm here to just remind you of a few things and also to talk about the importance of community control of the police uh, in terms of the struggle for black liberation and all progressive struggles in the United States of North America. Not America, the United States of North America. In our communities, the way the movement is is dealt with is very vicious. And it always has been. If you remember anything about the civil rights movement, you you can never think about the black liberation movement in this country without at the same time dealing with murder and mayhem and jails. Because that's how they have dealt with our movement always. That's how it's always happened. So it's not different today just because we don't have the Black Panther Party. They're doing the same thing. Laquan McDonald was shot 16 times by a racist, craved cop. He was not in any movement. But his murder was an act of racist and political repression. Because what they're doing, what the police are doing, first of all, they're occupying our communities like a military. So if, you, if you're against war overseas, you've got to be against this war too. They're occupying our communities like a military. And every time they murder somebody, every time they torture somebody and have them sent to jail for a crime that they did not commit, that is an act against our movement. Because if you, if you go on the south side of Chicago or the west side of Chicago, which is in a very desperate situation in terms of unemployment, in terms of health care, in terms of housing, in terms of all of the various social conditions. You'll be hard-pressed to find a movement dealing with these issues. Now, is this just true of Chicago? People haven't, haven't thought about it. But the reason why is because of the intensity of police repression. And they're talking about intensifying it even further, talking about militarization of the police, 1033 or whatever they call it, okay? 
They've been militarizing the police for years. You saw that in Ferguson. But it was going on before Ferguson. They had the battering ram in Los Angeles back in the 1980s. So this has been going on for a long time. And we have to stop it. We have to stop it in order to give the organizing space that is necessary for our movement to organize, to overthrow those conditions of oppression that keep us in bondage. Now, that's what we're defending. We want to be clear about what we're defending. We're defending the right to organize and revolt if necessary, do whatever we need to do to get rid of oppression. Now, what's the oldest revolutionary movement on this continent? What's the oldest revolutionary movement in the Western world? Tell me. Haiti. Huh? Ain't nobody saying nothing. It's the revolt against slavery. It's the revolt against slavery. You heard of Paul Morris in Brazil? You heard of Haiti? Some of these things happened before the American Revolution. So we're talking about the oldest revolutionary traditions in this hemisphere. And we're talking about this here. Recognize the right of self-determination when it comes to black people in this country. We have an inalienable democratic right to say who polices our communities and how our communities are policed. Do you support that? Yes. I can't hear you. Because that's what needs to go down. That's the fight for democracy. That's the fight for democracy. And it's a rock-bottom fight. If we don't win that, a whole lot of this other stuff you guys are talking about is not winnable. One last point. It's on strategy and tactics. It does no good, my friends, to have a strategy, a political goal, if you don't have the means by which you're going to get there. It does no good if you identify the enemy, but you do not exploit the contradictions and the conflicts between the enemy. So I'm not a purist. There are contradictions that are going on right now when we talk about Trump, this election, and so forth and so on. I'm saying the progressive movement should exploit them. What we should push first and foremost is the issues on the people's agenda. This is Michael Smith, and uh, he's with Law and Disorder on WBAI. And yeah, what are the threats that we're facing? 250 years ago, Edward Gibbon, the British historian, wrote the classic book, The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. Two volumes, the essence of which was, you can't have imperialism abroad and democracy at home. When Nixon retired, a reporter asked him, what's the secret of your political success? And Nixon answered quickly, he said, it was fear. It was fear. I used fear. And they don't teach you that in the Boy Scouts. 9-11 was the fear moment in the United States. Gibbon talked about Julius Caesar crossing the Rubicon River. That's where the expression crossing the Rubicon comes from. He brought the imperial troops across the river into Rome and effectively ended the Roman Republic. And that's what we're talking about now. We're talking about the effective end of bourgeois democracy in the United States of America. On September 1st, 1939, the great poet W.H. Auden sat in a bar on 42nd Street, five blocks north of here, and he wrote a poem called September 1st, 1939. And he called 
the 1930s, the uh, ascension of Hitler's fascism and the beginning of the war on September 1st when the fascists invaded Poland. He called that decade a low, dishonest decade. What I'm going to talk about is the last two low, dishonest decades we've had ever since Bush grabbed the presidency in the year 2000, which was in essence a coup. He rolled out their anti-terrorism plan later on, the doctrine of global supremacy and the advocacy of preemptive war, which has been outlawed by the United Nations Charter. Preemptive war. When Barack Obama gave his acceptance speech, when they gave him the Nobel Prize, he advocated preventive war. The German generals who started World War II were tried in Nuremberg. The jury found them guilty and they were taken and they were hung. Why? Because of preventive war. The USA's refusal to recognize international law or the applicability of the Geneva Accords, the roundup of immigrants since 9-11, which continues, the Patriot Act, which authorized massive spying, now renewed by Trump and the Democratic-controlled House of Representatives, the domestic deployment of military as law enforcement in violation of the Posse Comitatus Act, of 1878, the seizure of U.S. citizens and the execution of U.S. citizens. I'm talking about Anwar al-Sadaki, who was born in New Mexico, who was killed by drone by Obama, and then two weeks later his 16-year-old son was executed. When Eric Holder was asked by a reporter when he gave a speech at the University of Michigan about whether he thought that was legal, Holder said, of course it is. Uh, We don't guarantee judicial process. We just guarantee due process. What was the due process? Obama used to sit with the head of the CIA every Tuesday. They called it Terror Tuesdays. They would figure out who they wanted to kill by drone, and then they would kill them. That's what they call due process. They merge the power of the executive and elevate it above the judiciary and the legislature. That's called the unitary executive. That doctrine was developed under Bush. Where does that doctrine come from? It comes from Germany. Carl Schmitt was the lead jurist in Germany in the 30s, and he developed that doctrine. And now it's studied in law schools in the United States, the unitary executive. Suppression of Muslim charities. Uh, We have Nancy Hollander uh, in the audience. Nancy Hollander handled the main case in that, And uh, perhaps she'd like to say something when we have question and answer period. The secret sneak and peek searches under the Patriot Act. The uh, classification of most government records. We didn't used to have that. Classifying government records turns democracy on its head. This is our government. These are our records. We're supposed to have them. Now they overclassify them. And if you leak them, what happens to you? You get indicted like Julian Assange and you face 175 years in prison. The legitimation of torture. They didn't prosecute the torturers. Torture is illegal under American law and under international law. Obama said, we have to look forward, not backward. And he didn't prosecute them. What does that mean? It means what Trump said. Torture works, Trump said. And we should do more of it. So that's still on the agenda. And there's a loophole in the military field manual that allows for it. The establishment of private military contractors 
like the mercenaries of, they used to call it Blackwater. I don't know what they call it now, but it's still around. Uh, The assertion of executive supremacy through signing statements. The 2007 John Warner National Defense Act, which allows the president to deploy National Guard of one state into another state without the permission of either governor. governor. Think about the implications of that. They don't want local police. Local police might be sympathetic to us. They were. Not the brass, but the lower cops during Occupy Wall Street, they were sympathetic to us. They don't want that. The assertion of state secrets privilege to protect the government from lawsuits by victims of torture or government abuse. Many liberals thought that after Bush was gotten out of office and Obama took his place, that the pendulum would swing back. It never swung back. That was an illusion. So I just want to conclude by observing that we can't move forward. We first have to understand and then acknowledge the enormity of what has been done to us. Once we understand that, then we can move forward. You're listening to Essential Dissent. This episode is Defending Our Movement, a panel from the 2020 UNAC conference, which was held at the People's Forum in New York City. UNAC is the United National Anti-War Coalition. We just heard from Frank Chapman and Michael Smith. Next up is Kevin Zies, after which Margaret Flowers poses questions to the panel. The threats we face is the question. I'd say there are two, uh, I'll just take two big categories. The first threat is ourselves. The second threat is the United States. As far as ourselves go, we have to approach our work to try to transform this government with utmost seriousness. Uh, This is not a game. And we need to really educate ourselves on what is effective and what isn't and how to move forward. We're not the first movement. There have been movements for long times in history. So there's a lot we can learn from. On popular resistance, uh, we we saw the 2020s as a decade of potential amazing transformation because many issues that we're facing are reaching crisis levels, whether it's the climate crisis, the U.S. empire, uh, the housing, health, and education crises. There's crisis after crisis. And combined with that, we're seeing people getting more active. The numbers on people participating in various kinds of activist uh, activities are just astounding. And I think it's really critical for us going in this decade that we organize ourselves and educate ourselves to really uh, accomplish as much as we can. That's why on popularresistance.org, we created a, a, a class that's a web-based class. You can all watch it. There's no charge for it. There's a pretty broad reading curriculum with it as well, a curriculum and also a reading list. It's eight classes, one hour long each, uh, and it talks about how social transformation occurs and goes through the process of social transformation based on the experience of many other movements uh, in the United States and around the world. So I'd really encourage us to people go to popularresistance.org and, and check out that school. You can uh, go through all eight classes or go through the reading list. There's various ways to take it. But I think we need to educate ourselves and understand how we can be more effective because there are tremendous opportunities and it's urgent that we take full advantage of them. The other I'll focus on just briefly is the United States. And when when we talk about our movements, what affects them, our movement is not just in the United States. Our movement is international. 
And so when the Venezuelan government was under attack, that was our movement being under attack. When Bolivia is under attack, that's our movement being under attack. Uh, and so when we, went, when we went into the Venezuelan embassy, thank you, Medea Benjamin, for helping to get us started with the Venezuelan embassy. When we went into the uh, Venezuelan embassy, uh, we were defending our movement because the movement was under attack. And it's a, a movement for economic, racial, and environmental justice, as well as peace and anti-imperialism. That's the movement. And uh, Venezuela is being attacked on all those fronts. All those issues were relevant there. And so when we went into that, into that embassy, we were part of an international movement and defending our movement. The U.S. has incredible tools, uh, and uh, one that we focus on in that class I mentioned is the tool of coming into our movements and disrupting them and uh, causing divisions and misleading the public about what we stand for. And how we respond to that, I think, is a very important. It's a, it's a widespread and long-term problem. Infiltration of political movements is uh, something that uh, has been going on for more than 100 years. And we saw it when we were in the Occupy movement. Occupy was like an invitation for infiltration. It was poorly designed to defend ourselves from infiltration. Uh, when we did Occupy, anyone could come to a General Assembly and participate. And that was a great opportunity for people to come in and send us off course. Uh, you could easily imagine a, an assembly of 50 or 80 people, four or five infiltrators come in and s different parts of the assembly and bring issues up and cheer each other on and totally send us up. We saw that happening. But we also learned through that process ways to defend ourselves. We'll get into when we talk about some of the, the later questions that Margaret asked us to talk about. Uh, but infiltration is so common. When I was uh, Ralph Nader's spokesperson uh, in the 2004 presidential race, Peter Camejo was his vice presidential candidate. And uh, Peter ran for president as a socialist in 1976, uh, had tremendous political experience, a fantastic guy. And one story he told of infiltration that has always stayed with me was they had their offices broken into repeatedly when they were running for president. And... Um, they were able to get the FBI in court, accusing the FBI of the break-ins. And during that court proceeding, I, I, I don't think you'd get them into court with the courts these days, but they did. Uh, during that court proceeding, the judge asked the special agent in charge, how many FBI agents do you have working in the Cameo campaign? Cameo had about 400 volunteers, and the answer was 65. And uh, so the judge then ordered all the agents to leave in the next 30 days. And Cameo, being very wise, said, no one is allowed to leave in the next 30 days. And so all those FBI agents who had to follow that judge's order exposed themselves as FBI agents. And one of those FBI agents was the co-chair of the campaign. And that one out of six odds, you know, the, after the 1968 Democratic Convention a few years later, CBS reported that one out of six of the people protesting at the 68 convention and that police riot were actually federal agents. One out of six. So infiltration is a reality, and I think we have to, there's lots of ways to deal with it without being paranoid. We'll, I'll, we'll talk about that when we get to some later questions. Uh, but it's, it's, and learning how to deal with that actually is something that ends up strengthening the movement uh, and not weakening it. I'll stop there and, and, and wait for the later questions. What impact do these threats have on our ability to organize and to take action? How, how have you seen that play out in your experience, Frank? Let me give you some examples. 
You talk about mass incarceration. There's hardly a black family in the United States that lives in an urban area, and even some in the rural areas, like in Mississippi, uh, that's not affected by mass incarceration. In Chicago, it, it, it has taken on a particular demonic character. We have the largest known and acknowledged victims of police torture in the whole entire country. I'm talking about 500 young men. They were young at the time. They were like, some of them were teenagers and some women who were tortured. In fact, the torturer, his name was uh, John Burge. He was trained in Vietnam. He tortured Vietnamese patriots. That was his work with the military. This was the man that was over torture in Chicago. This is the man that, starting back in the 80s, put hundreds of people in jail for crimes that they did not commit. Now, the city of Chicago has acknowledged this on many occasions. They acknowledge it by passing a reparations ordinance. Two mayors, the last mayor, Rahm Emanuel, and the one before him, Daly, acknowledged it, apologized to the families. So why are there still 500 people in jail? You may not be able to see it, but this prevents movements. This stops movements. Mass incarceration is a result of the war against drugs. That's what it's a result of. So it's, it's clearly a war measure. And also the murders and the intimidation and all that, that also stops, has, has impacts, you know. Now in the 2008 crisis, when a lot of people, homes got taken away from them in Chicago and so forth, they started a anti-eviction movement to deal with foreclosures and people being evicted. That movement had trouble taking off, off the ground because people in our communities were dealing with issues of mass violence. They were preoccupied with that, you know, and so it had, it, it had difficulty. So, you know, we haven't really um, made a scientific assessment of the extent to which uh, this repression affects movements, but all you got to do is look at the results. And all you got to do is look at how many people have been affected by it. And, and you get a pretty graphic idea. And this is something that people are not talking about. They're not talking about this part of racist and political repression as being a, a, a threat to democracy, as being a, a hampering the development of movements, but it is. And one final word on this. The black liberation movement in this country has been a pace setter for the struggle for democracy. So to the extent that that movement is crippled, we're all hurting. I wanted to pick up where Kevin left off on the infiltration of the Peter Cameo campaign. There was a lawsuit that his party, the Socialist Workers Party, brought against the FBI. It was brought against uh, uh, Hoover and his COINTELPRO program, which all of you I'm sure know about. Uh, the purpose of the COINTEL program was to uh, uh, break up and destroy left-wing groups, and in particular, the Black Liberation Movement. Hoover kept his special venom against the Black Liberation Movement. We know uh, what happened in Chicago uh, with Fred Hampton and Mark Clark, the uh, law firm that won a lot of the cases on torture, the People's Law Office, successfully represented the estate of Fred Hampton, and they got the Chicago police to admit that they assassinated him. And they did it in league with the FBI.
So that's what you had coming out of the FBI. But I wanted to talk about the uh, lawsuit because I was living in New York then. Uh, there was a lawsuit brought against the FBI, and I attended much of the trial. The trial took three months. The lawsuit took 15 years. The discovery aspect of the lawsuit took eight years. Ten million documents were produced. Leonard Boudin, who was the great constitutional lawyer of his time, was the attorney for the party. The judge called him up to the, uh, I almost said stage. Uh, (laughs) The judge called him up and and he said, Mr. Boudin, you're not going to believe what's in those documents. And sure enough, in a period of 15 years, the FBI used 1,300 informers. They used 300 infiltrators. They did 200 burglaries of offices and homes. They did 20,000 days of wiretaps, 12,000 days of listening devices. Landlords were visited so that their tenants would be evicted. Employers were visited so their employees would be evicted. Mistrust was stirred up amongst members inside the organization. Mistrust was stirred up with other organizations against the SWP. Violence uh, baiting was used. Leaflets were handed out saying, you're cowards. Why don't you fight the pigs trying to get them to do illegal stuff? So we know what we're up against. That lawsuit, and there are books written about it, that lawsuit proved what we already know about what they do to the movement. And it would be naive for us to think that they're not doing it now. Uh, We know that they infiltrated mosques uh, we know that they went after what they called black identity extremists, who are people trying to protect themselves against police brutality. We know what they're doing now. But we have one thing going for us. We've got the ruling in that lawsuit. Judge Grise, who was a Republican, but one of those old line Republicans that actually followed the law, he came out with, with a ruling enjoining the FBI from ever doing this again. He said... This is a legal political party. They've got a right to advocate in support of the Cuban Revolution. They've got a right to advocate in support of black nationalism. They've got a right to run candidates for political office. And you can't stop it. And he issued an injunction, and he fined him $264,000. That's the law. We've got the law on our side. Now, the Constitution isn't self-enforcing. We have to fight for that. But we've got the law on our side. You're listening to Essential Dissent. This episode is Defending Our Movement, a panel from the 2020 UNAC conference, which was held at the People's Forum in New York City. UNAC is the United National Anti-War Coalition. The question is uh, positive and negative impacts from these attacks? Well, yeah, I mean, okay. if there are some right. positive, we can bring that out, too. Well, I'll, first, I'll just mention on the infiltrator thing, uh, something we haven't said in public, hope it's okay, Margaret, is that there was an infiltrator in the embassy. And uh, it's not going to be part of our case because the judges narrowed the case to nothingness. And so that very relevant information is not something the judge let the jury hear. But there was definitely an infiltrator. There were times when we would make plans with our allies outside to get food in. And for some reason, the police or the coup mob was always there to stop us. We didn't know there was an infiltrator at that point. But we started to get suspicious that either they were listening or there was an infiltrator who was reporting or something was going on. So we started to use a security culture where a very small number of people got involved in these kinds of uh, food delivery and other efforts. 
and we would write down what we were thinking about and cover over it. And uh, we were successful in breaking through the, the food barrier and did get some food in. So I'll, I'll just mention that. That wasn't really going to be my answer. But since you mentioned infiltration, it, just, it still does go on. And so it, it did happen in the embassy. And since I'm on the embassy, I'll, as far as a positive and negative goes, I think that's a great example. The federal prosecution has been an opportunity for us to go around the country and make presentations to raise people's consciousness about Venezuela because it's so much misinformation. And when we were picking a jury in this case, the misinformation was incredible. The people who thought they knew something about Venezuela, everything they knew was wrong. They got all the information the Washington Post, the New York Times, the Guardian, the New Yorker, and NPR. You know, so they, every, everything they knew was wrong. I mean, the opposite of reality. One positive of the case was we early used this case to build consciousness and build awareness and also to build our movement because people from the movement uh, formed a defense committee co-chaired by uh, Bahman Azad and Ajamu Baraka and has a great uh, steering committee, an activist group that they did it independently of us uh, so they could make mistakes. We wouldn't get blamed for it. Uh, <laughs> but they did a great job of uh, organizing these tours and helping to raise money, and that was a fantastic positive about the government attacking us. The negative of that is we had to raise money for the defense and not raise money for popular resistance. So now we're talking about laying off our staff. Uh, so we're going to have to face up to that challenge of, of fundraising. And we may have to face another prosecution, which if it does, we are going to turn that to a positive. My experience in movements since I started out working on the drug war when Ronald Reagan was saying, just say no, and Ed Meese was the attorney general, I had to learn to take every negative and turn it to a positive. And uh, I think that's critical for us to learn as a movement. And, uh, and so if we are prosecuted again, we will turn that to a positive. We will uh, uh, use that to raise consciousness. We have a strategy, I think, this second, if it's, if it's the second go-around, not just for a mistrial, but for an acquittal. And if we get an acquittal, it's a strike against this failed coup. One more strike. So I think whenever we are under attack, we've got to figure out how, to, and I think the Socialist Party did that with that lawsuit, and Cameo did with his lawsuit, and the fight you guys are doing in, against torture is amazing, even though it's brutal and challenging and horrible. Uh, it's, it's, it's an organizing, and it's resulting in the community control of police legislation. So we've got to take these negatives because they are always attacking us and turn them into positives. I think that's one of the lessons, I think, of uh, organizing a successful movement. Thank you all. So you've heard, you know, some of the threats and how they impact our ability to kind of organize and, and take action or not. <laughs> Sometimes they embolden us, um, those kinds of threats. What are things in your experience that people in the movement can be doing to protect themselves? from these threats? What would your advice be to people in the movement? No, we have a movement, we have a mass defense movement that we just refounded. It's called the National Alliance Against Racist and Political Repression. And uh, we started back in 1973 in the uh, wake of one of the most massive defense movements in the history of this country. And that was the movement to free Angela Davis, and not just Angela Davis, but to free Angela Davis and all political prisoners. At that time, that included all of the members of the Black Panther Party that we knew about who were in prison. Some of them are still in prison today. Some of them are just finishing up on 40 years. Some are finishing up on 50 years. I know several of them who have died, you know. So uh, go to our website, uh, nwrpr.org, and uh, you can get updates on this. 
We just had a refounding conference where we had 1,200 people at the opening rally of that conference from 28 different states and 101 different cities. And they were mostly black and brown people. About one-third was white, with white working class. Average age range was between 23 and 33. So we had young people there who were ready to take up this fight. Now, why, did we, why, were, why were we able to attract all of those people? That addresses your question. It's because they saw what we were doing in Chicago as a mass movement with a very practical democratic demand. And they already had little pockets of resistance going on in all of these different places, all these 101 different cities. So they came there to get a baptism in struggle and tactics. Now, in Chicago, we started out with 150 people. Now, we have over 100,000 supporters. Now, how are we measuring those supporters? We're measuring those supporters because in the last election that we had in Chicago for the city council, we had people who were running in those elections as CPAC candidates who were supporting the issue of community control of the police. We told them we don't push politicians. We push issues. So when they would come to us and say, I'm going to endorse CPAC, would you endorse us? We said, no. No. You endorse the CPAC because it's for justice. Plus, you ain't done shit yet. You know? So, so what, we, what we want you to do is continue to support CPAC and, and, and whatnot. We ain't doing no quid pro quo here. You know? You supporting this here because this is a struggle for justice. This is a struggle against the genocide being perpetrated in our communities. That's why you're supporting this, okay? So now, we garnered in that election 176,000 votes. That demonstrates that we can build a mass movement. We have that ability, but we got to get out there in the streets. We organize door by door, block by block, Neighborhood by neighborhood, political district by political district. That's the only way to do it. You can't show me any social revolution that took place anywhere in this world that didn't organize from the bottom up. Revolutions don't take place organizing from the top down. You got to organize the people at, at, on the ground to change the power relationship between the oppressor and the oppressed. The other thing is, just a note on reform. Don't be against reform. There are different types of reforms. There are reforms that don't do nothing but tickle you. <laughs> and then there are reforms that bring about a change in the power relationship between the oppressor and the oppressed. That's what the fight for the Voting Rights Act did. That's what the fight that we're doing is gonna, is gonna do. It's, it's gonna bring about a change between the relationship between our community and the police. And we're fighting for our inalienable democratic right to say who polices our communities and how our communities are, pol are police. Now, we're showing you how to do it. You know, we're not telling you how to do it. We're not preaching to you about how to do it. We're showing you how to do it. Michael, you want to take that next? I wanted to mention the Julian Assange case because, in my opinion, it's the most important First Amendment case of our times. Julian Assange is a truth teller and a whistleblower.
10 years ago, he got the Iraq war tapes and the Afghanistan war tapes and other stuff out of the Democratic Party, and he published them on WikiLeaks. The Iraq collateral murder tape went viral. It showed U.S. servicemen in a helicopter gunning down 12 Iraqis plus two Reuters journalists and several children and then chuckling about it. The U.S. government never forgave him for that. That's when they started their campaign against him. The uh, first thing the Pentagon decided to do was to smear him. They figured that if they could destroy his reputation, it was as effective as a bullet to the back of the neck. So they spread it around that he was a rapist, which is BS. They even accused him of abusing his cat. The uh, uh, rapist charge was particularly effective. He had to seek uh, asylum because they were going to ship him to Sweden, which would have sent him here. And he knew what would happen if he got sent here. So he, he went into the Ecuadorian embassy as a political uh, person. They gave him asylum. And uh, the administration in Ecuador changed. And they elected a guy whose name was Lenin Moreno, misnamed. Lenin Moreno opened the door to the embassy so they could haul him out of there and put him in prison. So as we speak today, he's in Belmarsh Prison. It's an infamous maximum security place. His health is wrecked. The last time he was in court, he couldn't remember his name or date of birth. His father visited him and said he's afraid he's going to die. If they succeed in extraditing him, and if they succeed in convicting him, which they will, they want to put him away for 175 years. They'll put SAMs on him, which means he can't communicate it with anybody. That's what they did to uh, uh, Lynn Stewart. And he'll die a slow death in prison. But what will die with him is the right for investigative journalists to publish national security information. The way journalists work is they're just not passive. They go out and they cultivate sources and then they publish that stuff. That's what the uh, journalists did in the Pentagon Papers case, where uh, Daniel Ellsberg was encouraged to do what he did. And he did it, and the reason that Ellsberg's case was thrown out was that the government overreached, and they burglarized his shrink's office to get dirt on him. When the judge found that out, he threw the case out. Well, they've done the same thing to Julian. The number of things they've done to Julian are, are, are legion in terms of their illegality. It shows the corruption of the capitalist court system in the United States and Britain and Sweden and in uh, Ecuador. But one thing they did was the Ecuadorians in the embassy hired a Spanish company to provide security. So they set up security cameras inside the embassy. Well, that Spanish company was working with the CIA. So they filmed and live-streamed all of Julian's meetings with his lawyers. They even live-streamed him back to Langley when he was in the toilet. That's an invasion of, the, of his First and Fourth and Sixth Amendment rights. They should throw it out for that reason. They're not going to throw it out in the United States for that. But under European law, they've got a chance. They've also got a chance under British law because the agreement that the Brits have with the United States is they're not going to send somebody over here if it's a political case. This is obviously a political case. What they've charged Julian with is something he did 10 years ago. They didn't charge him initially because he was a publisher. And the Obama administration didn't want to go that far. They prosecuted more whistleblowers than all other presidents combined. 
but they didn't want to prosecute a publisher because that would overthrow the New York Times Pentagon precedent, and they didn't want to go that far. Well, it took Trump to go that far. So if they're able to do that, and they're able to close down publishers, not just whistleblowers, but publishers, it's the end of a free press, certainly the beginning of the end. It's certainly the end when national security journalism, when people want to report on what they're doing abroad and what they're doing uh, in spying on people. But it could be the end of the free press period. That's what's at stake. That's why I say it's the most important First Amendment case of our times. You're listening to Essential Dissent. This episode is Defending Our Movement, a panel from the 2020 UNAC conference, which was held at the People's Forum in New York City. UNAC is the United National Anti-War Coalition. We continue with Kevin Zeese of Popular Resistance and then close with commentary from the audience and the panelists. I first want to thank you both for your comments. That conference was fantastic. I was very lucky to go to that Chicago conference. It really, you described it well. A great intersection of people uh, and issues all focused on uh, the democratic right to control the police in your community. It's a fantastic uh, issue. And also to stand up for political prisoners. And the United States likes to pretend there aren't political prisoners in our country, but there are. And it's important for us to recognize that and really to organize about that. And I agree with you on the uh, Assange case. I mean, it's the John Peter Zenger case of this century. The Zenger case was a colonial-era case that essentially led to the First Amendment. And uh, the Assange case is going to define freedom of the press in the 21st century. So it's a a critical thing. As to your question about what the movement can do uh, to defend itself uh, from these attacks... Every, everything we do is really starts from education and organization. Just You can't underestimate the importance of educating ourselves and organizing ourselves and building the movement into a mass movement. That's where power comes from. Fringe movements are ignored. Uh, mass movements have victories. And I think we are on the verge of that. You know, when, when, when Occupy was around, uh, we, we were closely monitoring Occupy, reporting on it, as well as participating in it. We did a tour of Occupies. Uh, when our Occupy was infiltrated, we did a tour of Occupies to see what was happening around the country. And looking at Occupy, only 0.1%, one-tenth of 1% of the public was involved in Occupy. And look how that scared the government. The power structure, the you know, FBI, Homeland Security were on the phone each week with police agencies where Occupies were happening planning how do we deal with this, planning the infiltrations, planning the, the arrests, planning how they were going to break them down. They were so afraid from one-tenth of one percent of the public. That's amazing. And, uh, you know, Occupy has had incredible long-term effects. Uh, our organization was founded based on that. Uh, we, it was how do we continue to build the movement after the encampment center. We always thought Occupy was a, a tactic, and not a movement. It was, you, we couldn't occupy public space forever. I know I hated occupying public space. I didn't enjoy sleeping outside in the middle of a city. I don't even like doing that in Yosemite Park. Uh, I definitely didn't like it in the city, but it had a tremendous impact. The Sanders campaign would not have happened without Occupy. You know, even though I'm not a Sanders supporter, I'm not a, I'm not a Democrat or Republican, I can't support either one of those parties or any of their candidates because I see both parties as too corrupt to support. But the Sanders campaign is changing the uh, debate and causing fissures in the Democratic Party, which I hope explodes over it. It'd be just a 
quite an amazing thing. So, but that would not happen without the movement. So even though we aren't involved in that campaign, as a movement, we are impacting the narrative in the country and the politics of the country. And now I think looking at where we are today, there are so many strands of the mo- that uh, have them grown. And I mentioned earlier that we're at these crisis points on multiple issues. Well, all those issues that are crisis points, there are also movements. The climate movement is real, big, young, energized, uh, you know, planning event after event. I know they're going to be shutting down D.C. from Earth Day to May Day coming up. The peace and justice movement is recovering from the Obama era when uh, Obama's uh, hope and change just destroyed it, especially in the black community, as Glenn Ford described. Housing movements, healthcare movements, violence against black people by police. I mean, all these movements are growing incredibly. We've gone from one-tenth of a percent of people active to about one percent. That's a ten times increase. And that's getting to the point where it can't be ignored. If we keep growing like that, we will be building a movement that will be a mass transformative movement at the time when the crisis issues are hitting us and a mass transformative movement can really take advantage of it. So even though we're facing challenges, I think we should also be looking at and saying we are growing in a significant way and can have a big... Now, we have to keep doing it because there's other things going on as well. The white racist movement is also showing itself more publicly thanks to uh, Trump and uh, his supporters and their open racism, uh, more open than even previous presidents. So I think we are at a... How can, how can we defend ourselves? We educate, we organize, and we see the opportunity of moment. I think we are at a point in the history of the development of this country that this next decade can be transformed in a very positive way. So we should be continuing to build on the successes that we've had, turning their attacks, their negatives into positives, and creating positive spirals that will be uh, an unstoppable uh, mass movement. That's how we defend ourselves. Thank you all. Some themes that have emerged, the education, our knowledge, the way that we organize, the defense committees play a key role. Solidarity is not a word that we've been talking about, but it is. It really is solidarity within the movement when people are under attack. It's critical that we come together and defend people. And that's, it's important because it, it enables all of us to take the risks and the actions that we need to do if we know that our fellow people in the movement will be there you know, when we need them. So uh, it empowers all of us. My name is Tracy Mulm. I'm a member of the Anti-War Committee in Minnesota, also a member of Freedom Road. And I was one of the Anti-War 23 in September of 2010. I had my house raided. I just want to start my question by saying what Kevin said is absolutely right. We build movements. And that's why I'm still here today, thanks to a lot of people here coming out to defend us. But what we've seen, and like when we were looking at cases and when our raids happened, is communities that are under attack don't have that same ability to come up and defend themselves, right? The Holy Land Five, most of them retracted, right? The Arab community retracted when 9-11 happened and they were attacked. The same is happening with the Indian community right now as they talk, try to talk about Kashmir. And so I'm hoping the panel can talk a little bit about how to work with communities and help uplift and build solidarity with communities that feel like retracting is the way to go. Let me just talk about the alliance and what our policy is. Because we've ran into this problem in uh, dealing with political prisoners and also in dealing with torture cases and also in dealing with the Laquan McDonald case. 
In the McQuan McDonald case, his family did not want us to do anything. They made a deal with the mayor that they would sit on that tape of his murder and that they would not challenge it. So what did we do? We said, well, injustice is not your personal property. It's not, it doesn't just belong to you, you know. The injustice is against our community. That was a lynching. And we couldn't sit quiet on it. We wouldn't. And so we fought to get that tape. And when we got that tape and got it shown on TV, all hell broke loose. And so we were glad that we did it. And eventually, we got his family to show up in court when it came to trying the person who killed him, Jason Van Dyke. So I, I don't know what lessons you can draw from that, but uh, if it's an injustice, then we, you know, we, we should be clear that we have to move on that. You don't necessarily have to have the permission of the person that the injustice was perpetrated against to make the move. Nancy, you just got off an airplane from Portugal. I don't know how tired you are, but if you'd like to come up and speak, we'd like to have you do that. Nancy Hollander was the attorney for the Holy Land 5 case, Chelsea Manning. She's a wonderful defense attorney. And with that, uh, give her a hand. Thank you, Michael. I did want to say about the Holy Land Five in Dallas, the community really did come together. It may have re- retreated in other places, but we had tremendous community support. Um, people were outside the courthouse every single day demonstrating during that trial. In any event, uh, Chelsea, I don't represent Chelsea in the grand jury case. I represented her in her appeal and got her clemency. But I do know that they've recently filed again a motion asking the judge to release her. At some point, sitting in the grand jury becomes punitive. It's just a matter of when the judge decides that there's no question that nothing he does will make her testify. And you need to know about Chelsea. Her position is much broader than Julian Assange. Her position is that grand juries should not exist in this country, that... That's really what she stands for, and I agree with her. It's a secret proceeding. Defense lawyers are not allowed. Usually the defendant is not allowed. It's just a prosecutor's playground. So that's her position, and she's in the women's facility there in Virginia. She is okay. She loves getting mail. You can write to her. Usually it's all over Facebook what her address is, or you can email me and I'll tell you. But she loves getting mail, and what you can do to support her, I think, is to write a letter and tell her how much you you care about her. Um, Because she'll be there probably until that grand jury ends, at which point, for those of you who don't know, she will be released, but the government can subpoena her to the next grand jury, And we can start another 18 months. This is actually the second grand jury. When she first went to jail, the grand jury had already been sitting and it only had a few months left to go. She got out. I did speak with her in the middle of that period of time when she was out. But she'd already received a subpoena and was going to go back. So that's what will happen. It could happen for a long time. Eventually, I think she'll get out, but... She's never going to change her mind. She's never going to testify. And probably 
it's more than just Julian. They now have indicted Julian um, for espionage. Um, when they first, she first went in the grand jury, they had not. They cannot question her about the existing indictment. Can't use a grand jury to shore up an indictment. You use a grand jury to get an indictment. So either they're planning more charges against Julian or they're looking at someone else. And they could well be looking at some others. I want to say only one other thing, and that is to support what Michael said. If we don't have journalists, it's all over. We won't have any idea what our government or any government is doing because any journalists, even in foreign countries, are going to be afraid. And that's why I agree that Julian's case is so important. And remember, the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Guardian, Der Spiegel, they all printed the information that Julian got from Chelsea. Nobody's going after them. Collateral murder was up on TV all over the place. You just have to go to WikiLeaks to find it. So they've targeted WikiLeaks, and it is fundamental to any democracy to have a free press. Without it, it's really all over. You've been listening to Essential Dissent. I'm Wilton Vaught, producer and host of the series. This episode was Defending Our Movement, a panel from the 2020 UNAC conference, which was held at the People's Forum in New York City. UNAC is the United National Anti-War Coalition. You can find Essential Dissent on YouTube, Facebook, and iTunes, and you can download the audio for free via radioforall.net. That's radio, the number four, all.net. Thanks for listening.